Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. While the defund the Hamilton police protest continues at Hamilton City Hall, demonstrators are demanding that a significant portion of the budget be divested into housing initiatives. Former Hamilton Mayor Larry Diani, also a member of the Police Services Board, formerly, is going to join us and talk about that. Prime Minister Trudeau trying to temper Canadians' expectations about a COVID-19 vaccine. He reminds us that we're not going to be first in line for this, but we will get those vaccines eventually. And Halton's mayors and the Board of Conservation Halton are calling on the province to scrap plan changes to the Conservation Authorities Act. We'll get the details about what those changes could mean. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's pick up on what we did yesterday in the first hour of the program, of course, about the protest that's going on in front of Hamilton City Hall. Uh, a number of people have set up shop there. Uh, the defund HPS protest continues at the forecourt of City Hall. Demonstrators are demanding a significant portion of the Hamilton Police Services budget be stripped away and uh, put into housing initiatives. Uh, interesting twist on this. Now, we talked about this a little bit yesterday, and uh, to give it some context, uh, Roa, who was one of the organizers of the defund HPS, uh, was asked about whether this whole protest is about housing or is it about policing? Police budget in Hamilton is overinflated. Their surplus is over $500,000, and they're still asking for a $4 million increase. They use those funds to harass unhoused people, to displace them further, and to move them where they obviously have nowhere else to go that becomes an issue and it's like instead of using the police paying them to harass unhoused people we could use those funds to have everyone be housed because housing is a human right and then you know we wouldn't need police to be harassing people all right that's one perspective obviously and the perspective i'm sure that's shared by an awful lot of the people that are down there uh yesterday in the program we also had deputy chief uh, frank bergen on uh one of the areas of concern that was expressed by a number of people was the fact that uh, one of the organizers actually received a ticket and uh, the insinuation seemed to be, well, that's because they were doing a demonstration uh, about what the defunding of police. But as uh, Deputy Chief Bergen explained to us, it was not about the protest itself. It was about, well, the COVID crisis. And our mission statements and operational plans is to ensure that people have the ability to have a respectful gathering, that everyone has the ability of safety and preserving their rights uh, as, as deemed in the Charter. So we're fully aware of that. But, but we also have to adhere to certainly what is in the middle of this public health crisis. So there we go, and uh, the demonstration continues today, and uh, the debate, I was going to say continues, but I'm not so sure that it does. I'm not so sure where you even had a beginning to that about this quote-unquote defunding of police. Not a new issue, of course. This is something that has been... Uh, talked about and discussed in many municipalities ever since the murder of George Floyd uh, back in the summertime. So where are we on this particular situation and what can and can't do uh, when it comes to police budgets and the like? I'm going to bring former Hamilton Mayor Larry Deany into the conversation. Uh, Larry, of course, uh, is not only former mayor, but also a member of the Hamilton Police Services uh, during his time on, as mayor of the city. Uh, Larry, thanks for jumping in today. Great to have you on the program. Hey, Bill, it's always a pleasure. There's so much to unpack here, and and, and you know, this is a very complex issue, and I, I'd say that to try to, to, you know, gloss over this and say, well, it's just too big for us to handle. It's something that we need to discuss. Uh, but the whole idea of defunding police, maybe let's start at the beginning there. Your thoughts about that? Well, so um, I, I agree with you that, that uh, and I agree with the, the Deputy Chief who made the point yesterday that, that uh, you know, people seem to be confusing um, apples and oranges here, um, and I know that uh, that the defund the police folks are are trying to connect the dots and saying, well, this money that's going there could be used here, and we would prefer it being used 
here. Uh, but but let's start with a defund the police slogan, which I think is very, very unfortunate uh, because it suggests to many people, I would say most Hamiltonians, that you're defunding public safety, in fact, when you do that. And I wish that the group that had come up with that in the States, which Canada seems to, at least some individuals in Canada seem to have adopted, would have chosen a better uh, a better moniker, a better slogan to promote their cause around social justice and reforming the police. Even reform the police would have been a more acceptable, I think, uh, a moniker to go forward with. And And in fact, if you want to look at the United States as a model, this last election that they had, those who were promoting the defund the police lost political ground and political representation in a number of areas as a result of that. So, so it's, it's, it's a bad start right from the beginning. But it's also a, a bad idea when, when you take resources away from those whose job it is to protect and keep communities safe. Uh, it's, it's bad to erode that sort of support. Uh, now, I, having said that, if people want to talk about making the police more accountable, even though they are perhaps the, uh, of, of any group in society, of any institution in society, they have the most oversight, and they deserve to have the most oversight because of the awesome powers that they have, even to take lives under certain circumstances. If you want to talk about reforming, improving, making more accountable. I think everybody's up for that. Nobody wants to see any organization, especially why, those... Larry, why aren't we having that discussion then? I mean, we've been talking well, around this well, issue for the yeah, longest but time. This, but this is the point, Bill. I, I think, I think uh, there are small groups who have an axe to grind against the police, in some cases justified, certainly when you look at some of the examples of the of the uh, of the the sort of abuses the the Sammy Yatim situations or the George Floyd situations in the states that there are some groups that that have been aggrieved there are some groups that historically have been aggrieved uh, by by these uh, uh situations and and that needs to be addressed so so people are using those uh issues and examples as a way of minimizing the forces of order. And but, but, but I, want to, I, I want to stop you right there, because yeah. I want to address that okay. point, because you're right, I've, I've heard that consistently in this whole thing uh, about police violence, and even the, uh, the, the clip we played just before you came on, they talked about police harassing people on a continual basis. Uh, that's, that's one Which perspective crazy, on this. Uh, uh, well, I, I had tend to agree with you on a situation like this, but let's, let's assume there are bad apples in police. Uh, and, uh, and we've seen examples of it on video, the people that, that killed George Floyd and, and other situations like that right. over the last little while. Is, is cutting the police budget going to eliminate that? Is that going to get rid of the no. bad apples? I mean, what a naive approach. It's not going to do, it's not going to fix that problem at all. That's the point. We need to have a discussion about, about attitude and about training and about vetting people that get to wear the uniform. It's an honor to wear that uniform. Uh, you know a lot of cops. I know a lot of cops. Uh, my, my son's a cop. 
There you go. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the ones I know, and I'm sure the ones you know, including your son, uh, are honored to wear the uniform and, and, and I think fully wear the responsibility. Uh, and I can tell you that, you know, if there's a bad apple there, they don't like it as much as anything else because it reflects on all of them. But why aren't we having that discussion instead of simply saying, let's cut a budget? Uh, and I want to get into that because I know we only got a limited amount of time. Uh, so from your time on the police services budget, and I think it's important to make this point, uh, City Council cannot arbitrarily cut the budget. This is I'm talking about provincial law here in Ontario now. And as a matter of fact, they're not even allowed to go over that budget line by line. Um, you know, and if and if they do automatically say, okay, we're just going to slash this by however millions of dollars, uh, we already know that that's going to be a reduction in, in staffing because 90% of the budget is salaries and pension. If if it's deemed that we don't have the proper protection to serve this community uh, by provincial law the opp will come in here and do it for us and, and i don't think we want to go there but it, th those are the realities here this is different from seattle and different from other cities uh, where they seem to have a little more control over police budgets ontario is a different sort of an animal and hamilton ha and, and every other community has to abide by that Ab absolutely and people just don't want to understand that and you know even the activists who are now in front of City Hall, uh, they want the council to do something that by law the council uh, has limited uh, uh, jurisdiction over because of uh, exactly what you quoted uh, in terms of provincial law. So really, they should be camping out in front of Queen's Park uh, because that's where those decisions around the process are made. But, but the other side of this coin, Bill, and, and, and before we go, um, I, I want to validate that that talking about affordable housing is important, but but blaming Hamilton that that just recently uh, through through uh, the uh, the uh, hydro dividend the mayor's task force put fifty million dollars into into affordable housing over and above what was already being spent. The federal government just gave ten point eight million dollars to address some affordable housing issues. Those are real dollars that are going to have a good impact. Uh, on the city, are they going to solve all the problems? No, because the problems are are uh, systemic and 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 they've been long-standing historic problems. But they are going to be addressing them, and so I think credit should be given where credit is due, and more work needs to be done. But when you want to rob Peter to pay Paul, you're hurting both Paul because there's not enough money, and Peter because you're taking resources that they need to do their job. It just doesn't make sense. And although, you know, these are well-intentioned people, I'm sure, including the young lady that's quoted in the paper, whom I don't know, but she seems to be sincere in what she says, she says she wants to start a conversation. Well, you know what? That conversation is happening, and it's bypassing you uh, because you're not at that table. You're protesting in front of City Hall. Be constructive, and I think people will listen to you. Protest and rip up tickets and, and say outlandish things and people will ignore you, and that's the unfortunate reality today. Listen, and, and I know that when Ch Deputy Chief Bergen was on, he said that, you know, that, that they were conflating the two issues. Uh, and, and I know they want to connect the dots. Housing is a crisis here. We know that it is a crisis in this city and many other cities. And there has been a failure. And I understand people that are in that predicament uh, are very frustrated because of the slow motions of, the, of government. Uh, but, you know, to simply say, well, there's a pile of money here. I mean, I had Kojo Dampy on the program yesterday. I've got a lot of respect for Kojo and the, the work he does in the community. But one of the things he cited is, as 
you know, exorbitant spending by police was the forensics library. <laughs> I'm sorry, or the, the research lab, I'm sorry. That's a, that's a necessity in police work. If we didn't have that sort of a, a, an attitude and that, and that facility there, uh, for instance, the, the two idiots that killed, you know, Tim Bosma would still be roaming around the streets. That work is essential to police services to catch people that are committing heinous crimes. Uh, you know, you can't put that aside and simply say, well, cut that out. It's going to have a negative impact. I, I want to dump all kinds of money into public housing i uh, but we have to find it from someplace but you can't simply do this now one other point i want to make and i want to get your comment on this uh, i've watched some of the reaction because i know you went on social media as soon as you found out you were going to be on the program today and uh, a number of people have responded with their feelings and their opinions on it uh, and a lot of them are citing the example of what the city of Seattle has done. And that was, of course, a, a flashpoint for a lot of people because there were protests in Seattle for just about through the whole summer. Uh, yes, they have reduced their police budget, but they did not arbitrarily say we're slashing this much out. They have meetings with uh, community members and the chief of police and the former chief of police, and they went through this and they talked about what services do with the police not have to do anymore. And as a result of saying, okay, let's move this over to here, let's move this over to here, yes, they reduced the police budget significantly, but they did it in an analytical way, not an arbitrary way. And, and I'm, I'm not hearing too many people advocating for that, and I think that's the attitude we have to take. No, they want a 50% reduction. Some of them would want um, no funding. In fact, you know, defund the police also uh, became uh, eliminate the police or words that affect at some point, which is even crazier. Uh, but the, the, the Seattle experiment is an experiment. Let's see how that works out. I mean, Hamilton has seen a rash of murders, many of them in the downtown area, um, unprovoked by, by people with mental illness and so on. Uh, the, 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 the local paper just carried an article a couple of weeks ago uh, just on the number of murders that have occurred. So when people say, you know, you, you, you put more money into social services and it'll reduce crime, that equation doesn't necessarily work out in that way. Uh, and so you, you've got to look after all sides of this, of, of, of keeping a, a society healthy. Public housing is important. Affordable housing is extremely important. Uh, public safety is paramount, uh, I would say, and most people would agree. And so this needs to be done in a concerted, logical, thoughtful way, not in a, by creating histrionics uh, and publicity stunts such as happening in front of City Hall right now. And I mean, there. when I talked at the beginning of our conversation that this is very complex and there's so many different sides to it, uh, there are too many sides to this to, to do in a 15-minute conversation uh, that we're having right now. Uh, and, and like I say, we need to talk about policing. We need to talk about the, the job that they do. But here's the other side of that coin. And, you know, even with what Seattle did, Larry, with saying, okay, you know what, because and, and, we've had that discussion here, maybe police shouldn't be involved in mental health calls, etc. You know, we can get into that about some of the other services. But if you're going to if you're going to sever that off and give it to somebody else, so like social services or, or, or health care, that has to be funded. So, you know, you might be taking money out of the police budget, but you're going to have to reapply it to those other services, or there's not going to be enough resources to look after those people. The problem is still there. It's a matter of who responds to the problem. So it's it's not as if there's going to be this great big pile of money that's left over that we can just jump and throw into someplace else. Those services that we're talking about that police may or may not be doing or should not be doing are simply going to be taken over by somebody else. And and we've got to be fair about this and say, okay, we've got to give them the resources to do it too. Because the the, 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 the bottom line here is the people that, that, that are suffering from mental illness or suffering from uh, from social problems still have to have people that are going to look after them. 
And in fact, there was a letter to the editor of the local paper um, a month or so ago from a healthcare provider who said, thank goodness uh, that the police came on this call with this mentally ill person who was very violent, because if, if they hadn't been there, maybe I wouldn't be here. So it, it's a complex situation. And Sloganeering is never a good recipe for good governance. Uh, and so when, when you get these people who just mouth uh, the, the latest platitude without thinking about the implications of what is being done uh, isn't, isn't uh, productive, I don't think. And that's not to say that we stand still. It's not to say that we don't try to improve every situation. It's not to say that we don't look at budgets and the allocation of funds in order to have a good, healthy community. I think that needs to happen all the time. And you and I, when we were on council, we wrestled with that yearly, where we had, you know, the pie that we had to make sure was well-funded. And you have to make trade-offs and you have to use your good, the, the best judgment you have with the best advice you have in order to allocate, refund, uh, uh, to allocate funds uh, and resources to all of the various things that people want and need in a community. And to sort of arbitrarily come along and say, just slash 50% uh, of the budget or take away the whole budget or tell the police not to respond to mental health issues when, in fact, there may be situations of danger uh, is just too facile. And, and in fact, it's, it's misleading and unfair and unjust. And it doesn't, you know, reflect the will, the, the, the moderate will of the majority of Hamiltonians or people in other communities as well, I dare say. We're just about out of time here. But one other codicil to this whole thing, too, is if there are discussions ongoing and if there is an attitude among all these parties uh, to do something about it, let's have some more transparency because I, I'm not hearing a whole lot about this. Maybe it's happening, but it shouldn't be happening behind closed doors. Anyway, to, to be continued, as they say. Larry, thanks so much for the time today. Bill, have a great day. You too. Former Hamilton Mayor Larry Deany. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Vaccines. Big news, of course, over the last couple of weeks with uh, three different companies and probably more to come uh, with all different vaccines. Very encouraging. And uh, there were some stories that we've seen recently that said these vaccines, at least some of them, could be available as soon as next month in some sections. However, yesterday, the uh, Prime Minister in his daily briefing to the nation uh, tempered that enthusiasm just a little bit. Uh, the Prime Minister acknowledged that some countries could have some of their citizens vaccinated against COVID-19 before Canadians get their own shots. But we've pre-bought a whole lot of that stuff, and, and that means we're going to get the doses, but not quite as soon as we might think. Here's what the Prime Minister says. No one place gets through this pandemic until all of us get through this pandemic, and I'm uh, confident that we're going to be able to uh, access the necessary vaccines for Canadians uh, across uh, international borders. So how's this all going to roll out? Uh, we're hearing things from the Premier, we're hearing things from the Prime Minister about availability, about how this is going to happen, uh, who gets to the top of the list. Uh, I want to bring uh, Rachel DeMore into the conversation. Rachel is a national, national online journalist with Global News. Uh, Rachel, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Thank you for having me. I'm hoping you can add some, some light to this because we're getting an awful lot of mixed messaging, I think, from some of the leaders about this is going out. And I, I guess I heard from an awful lot of people over the last couple of days when we heard about Pfizer and Moderna and, and some of the other stuff that we're hearing about now that it'll be a matter of weeks and we'll roll up our sleeves and this COVID thing is going to go away. It's not going to be that simple, is it? Yeah, no. So I think we've heard a lot of excitement in recent weeks about vaccines, obviously some really unprecedented positive results. Um, and predictably, you've seen 
a lot of social media jokes and posts yep. about how this vaccine might set us free, quote unquote. But a lot of the experts I've been speaking to, though they've been really heartened by the enthusiasm, really emphasize that this is not going to be instantaneous. Uh, and that there's a lot of process to undergo, uh, not only with distribution and, and those logistics, which we've been told now is just going to be a challenge around the world, uh, but also, you know, how long we'll get to having those vaccines dispersed to those priority groups that we're identifying. And, and you know, we need to, I guess, go back over that one step there and say, OK, what groups are we talking about? You know, who is going to be at the top of the list? Who is going to be fr- at the front of the line? Yeah, so the National Advisory Committee on Immunization has identified some key populations um, that include healthcare workers, caregivers in long-term care facilities, essential frontline responders, um, and this is all preliminary recommendations. So we don't have necessarily a concrete idea yet, but that's sort of where it's headed. So with that in mind, uh, let's talk about uh, about how soon the vaccine is actually going to be ready. Uh, and uh, what the Prime Minister told us yesterday, Rachel, was not really news. I think we'd known for quite some time that we don't have a pharmaceutical manufacturing industry like Germany, the U.K., or even the United States, for that matter. Uh, but there was always some concern about how soon we're going to get it. Did you get any sense at all uh, when the Prime Minister said it might not be at the same time, uh, how long that delay might be? Uh, it's a great question. I mean, the experts that I spoke to really couldn't say anything definitive. I think, like you said earlier, it's, it's true. We've heard provincial governments like Ontario and Alberta come out and say rather roughly how many doses of each vaccine they expect to receive and when. But um, it's hard to say for sure. Um, it's just I think everyone's hoping sooner than later, obviously. <laughs> oh, absolutely. The other element to this, too, I guess, is is we're not 100% absolutely sure about the efficacy of this. I mean, the testing that's uh, been done so far is, is very encouraging. But uh, as you've been reporting and, and as Global News has been reporting ever since the Pfizer announcement came out a little more than a week or so ago now, uh, we haven't seen the data on this. Uh, we've just seen the press releases, and I've talked to a lot of experts, and I know you have in doing your research for your, for your reporting on this, who are saying we'd like to see the numbers and, 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 and do some analysis of this before we actually give this a two thumbs up. Uh, it's encouraging, but it's, it's not definitive yet, is it? Yeah, no, of course. I mean, all of these front runners in, in the vaccines that we're seeing right now are, are still in the process of completing their late stage trials. All of them are in a bit of a variation of where they're at in their tests. Um, one of the experts I spoke to yesterday really mentioned that, you know, these trials uh, are measuring a reduction or absence of disease and not infection. So what we still don't know is if you're able to contract the virus um, after getting the vaccine and therefore still able to spread it, even if that uh, severity of illness is lower. So that might have an impact on um, older people, perhaps, or people more at risk for the virus. Um, but on the flip side, another expert I spoke to said that he's not as concerned about that, you know, question mark at this point that, you know, if we turned COVID from a severe illness into the sniffles, it's, it's still a huge success, he said. Absolutely. I, I, it's, it's a matter of, you know, getting rid of some of the serious symptoms and obviously the, the impact that it's having on, on health care and hospitals and everything else. But but, but I, I guess in a perfect world, if there was not such a, a, an emergency situation because of COVID, Rachel, uh, uh, there'd be a lot more testing done on this, uh, you know, because we talked about phase three and, and the long term effects. In other words, you know, what happens a year after you take the vaccine? Uh, you know, when I've asked some of the experts, and I'm sure you've raised the questions with the folks you've talked to as well, uh, they've 
talked about two-stage vaccine, one vac- shot, and then maybe 30 days later, you get a booster mm-hmm. shot of that. And, I, and every time I've asked, well, is that are you good for the rest of your life, or are you good for a year? And they said, well, but we don't know yet. We don't. Mm-hmm. We're still we're still kind of flying blind there, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of unanswered questions at this point because we're again still waiting for some of the definitive results from some of these tests. Um, and part of the uh, reason I experts, the experts I spoke to, said not so fast on on us thinking getting a shot will return us to normalcy is because there's those waiting periods between shots. I think Pfizer's is a three-week period before the, before the second, and I think Moderna is about four. Um, so in other words, it's not going to be an in-and-out situation at your doctor's office, and you'll, you'll still have to wear a mask for the foreseeable future, but in terms of how long that's going to protect us for, um, it's going to be something we'll have to wait and see on. If we've learned one lesson uh, in, the, in the last nine or ten months that we've been dealing with COVID, uh, on both sides of the border, both Canada and the United States, is uh, we'll be far better off if we listen to the medical expertise and advice instead of the political expertise and advice? <laughs> yes, I, the, the medical expertise is, is where, I would, where I would focus on, yes. And, and, that's, and because of that, that's who you've been talking to. Uh, you know, because uh, with all due respect to our elected leaders, I mean, uh, you know, they're going to want to put a spin on this to say, hey, it's almost over. You know, we've done great work. And they, and they, they have funded this, and that's great. But uh, I, I think, you know, the, when, when you, the medical experts are cautiously optimistic, I think that's the, the tenure that we have to take here, too. We can't expect uh, what some of the elected leaders are telling us that, uh, yeah, hey, you know, by next summer, everything's going to be fine. We're going to be going to ball games. I hope we can. That may well be the case, but but there's no assurance of this yet, yet is there? Uh, I mean, it's an interesting point. Um, the experts that I spoke to were, you know, happy with the enthusiasm, and they were pretty confident that we were going to see some, you know, changes in, or some return to normalcy once we even get a percentage of the population vaccinated. Um, it's just not going to be a flick of the switch. Um, but it's definitely something to, to keep asking infectious disease and vaccine experts as, as we get further and further into this process. Yeah, and I know that, that, that part of your report, reporting over the last couple of days, even even when this all rolls out, we finally start getting the thing rolling here in Canada, uh, we're not even sure how many people are going to take it up on this. I mean, because there's some people that are still very nervous about that. And, and if we don't have a huge buy into this, that's going to have an impact on, on how efficient it's going to be too, isn't it? Uh, so for us to get to herd immunity, um, we would require about 60 to 70 percent of the population yeah. to be vaccinated in order to develop. Um, but the experts I spoke to were, were pretty strict on saying that, you know, even with a smaller percentage than that, we're still going to see significant benefits well before that. Um, it may not get you to, you know, that massive dinner party or sports arena overnight, but um, it's certainly going to be a gradual return to some of the things we, we saw last year. Some great reporting on this, and uh, obviously we're going to continue with uh, the work that you're doing on this. And uh, follow along as, as this develops over the next little while. It's a pretty exciting time, but we want to make sure that we've got all our facts straight on this. And, uh, Rachel, you've done a great job on this. Thank you so much for the time today. Thank you for having me. Take care. Rachel DeMore, National Online Journalist with Global News, uh, about vaccines. And, and it is great news, and there's some great stuff coming down the pipe here. Uh, but uh, we just have to make sure that, you know, we're kind of keeping our feet on the ground about this, too. Uh, but And by the way, just to her, uh, Rachel's point, uh, there are many other companies that are still in the development stage, so we may hear even more news about this uh, in the coming days and weeks. And uh, as uh, as 
uh, our experts have taught us over the last couple of days, uh, you know, the more vaccines available, the more readily available they will be to us. And uh, that's going to help an awful lot of the population worldwide, too. So we'll continue to give updates on this as uh, we find out more about this. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Even if you don't consider yourself an environmentalist, this is going to have an impact on you because it's it's where we build, it's what we do. I mean, you know, we have to respect the land and the watersheds around us, uh, which is one of the reasons why years and years ago, uh, Ontario government set up conservation authorities right across the province uh, to observe, to protect, and to inform the public about uh, what's going on, about conservation of environmental. Uh, environmental lands and uh, very, and precious lands too and we've seen a lot of positive results of that the green belt and, and so many protected areas well there's a new bill that the uh, Ford government is now proposing it's called bill 229 which basically is going to limit the ability to protect the environment and conservation authorities are upset about this we've talked with folks in the london middlesex conservation authority we've talked with the hamilton conservation authority uh, now halton's mayors and the board of conservation halton are calling in the province to scrap these plan changes with this legislation uh Last week, we talked with the chair of the Hamilton Conservation Authority, that's Councillor Lloyd Ferguson, and he says there's one amendment that would actually allow developers and others to go around conservation authorities and have these permits for building approved by the province directly. Clearly, uh, in my view, they're pandering to the development community. Uh, They want the um, the ability to have any applications that are denied by the Conservation Authority to appeal to LPAT, Local Property Appeals Tribunal, and, of course, they don't have expertise on, on wetlands and conservation areas. It sounds like this is going to be a piece of legislation that says, you know, don't confuse me with the facts. So just let us do what we want to do. I'm going to bring Chris McLaughlin into the conversation. Chris is the executive director of the Bay Area Restoration Council here in the Hamilton area, uh, which looks after not just the Bay, but, of course, Coots Paradise and, and uh, an intimate knowledge of the watersheds around there. Chris, good to have you on the program. Thanks for being with us today. Good morning, Bill. Thanks for inviting me. The more I read about this, the more I get concerned I'd be. And I, I think I mentioned this when I had Councillor Ferguson on the program last week. Uh, I spent some time when I was on City Council uh, a number of years ago now on the Hamilton Conservation Authority. Uh, I think I learned more in three years on that board than I probably learned in my whole school career about conservation, about environment, and about the impact of everything that we do has on the environment, which ultimately has an impact on us. It's uh, it, Everything is connected here, isn't it? It is, in, in fact, and you would know from your time on council the the wide number of issues, right, Bill, that, that the city is involved in, and you have to filter those as a councillor. Uh, you have to filter all of those issues, but you've got staff at the city, for example, as one of the many partners in the remedial action plan for Hamilton Harbour. Um, you've got staff in many different departments who are narrowly focused on their mandate, and it's difficult to get planning to talk with policy, to talk with wastewater, to talk with roads and other elements of infrastructure that impact on water quality. Like you were saying in your intro, conservation authorities were designed to give us that broad, integrated view of these really complicated systems across really large geographies. Like, for example, the the watershed of Hamilton Harbor stretches almost to the 401. Um, We're talking about a really vast area and a lot of water falls and travels across that watershed. And to have, like you said uh, in the intro regarding the LPAT, to have people in an agency with expertise making decisions about really critical lands, whether they're vulnerable wetlands or whether they're, they're areas prone to, prone to flooding and causing uh, damage to human health and property, um, it's really critical that we have these separate from 
the 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 financial interests in developing. Um, no one's suggesting that we stop building anything. It's just that we stop doing that in a way that damages our long-term ecological and social health. I think a lot of people in Manhattan even be aware of the fact that, and, and I'm glad you brought up the idea of watersheds, because it's something that maybe requires a little bit of an explanation. Uh, we're, there's water underneath us all all over the place, in, in not just in the Hamilton area, but in London certainly too. You, you don't, you know, the Thames River in London is not the only waterway there, and there's water underground uh, that feeds into the bay, that feeds into the other rivers, uh, the Red Hill uh, watershed. There's so many different things going on here, and, and you're right. What we used to do, and I don't know if they still do, I assume they do. Uh, when anybody comes, a developer wants to say, I want to build a subdivision, or I want to build a building, or I want to build a road, anything like that. Uh, one of the people that comment on it are the conservation authorities and they say well, okay what do you want to do where do you want to do it uh, well here's what exists here now and here's how it will impact that uh and and you know sometimes they'll say we don't think it's a good idea sometimes they'll say well you might want to modify this sometimes they'll say yeah it looks good knock yourself out but it's important to make informed decisions and the, and the conservation authority and their commenting authority on those is a key part of that this legislation as i understand it chris says now nah, you don't need to do that anymore skip that step it does really shoulder them out of, uh, elbow them out of the conversation. That's right. Um, and to the detriment of, of public health and the public purse, because we're going to have to deal with these issues down the road. You know, at the same time, we're having these conversations about how do we clean up Shadow Creek, for example? How do we improve water quality? Um, how do we clean up the bay and make it healthy again for people and critters uh, alike? We've got these actions being taken, for example, that would... Um, eliminate that that really important, broader, more integrated perspective on on planning that we absolutely need in such a complicated in, uh, uh, society as as we have in Ontario, with millions of people all trying to vie for land and resources, and all to the detriment of the natural environment if we don't plan really carefully for that continued growth. I. I think we need to give some historical perspective too i mean you know before conservations came along and before governments to their credit uh started to get wise about environmental issues and started to put some some uh, very important laws in place uh it wasn't that many years ago chris that we were simply dumping raw sewage into lakes and rivers uh, in just about every community we were letting industrial waste just flow into those and figure well what the heck you know it's only going out there what's the deal well it impacted water quality it killed wildlife in within those areas and all of a sudden we noticed Certain, certain bird species and other animals were starting to disappear. Uh, there was an impact to this, and 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 you know we've become smarter on this. And this this legislation seems to me to be a huge backward step. It really is. Uh, there, it's it has the potential to set us back decades in terms of the the law and policy that we've been able to uh, implement in Ontario to protect water in particular. Um, you know, this, it's, it's particularly alarming in this community, P perhaps the most estranged community from its water anywhere in Canada. You know, the, our, our harbour and the conditions of our harbour over decades past earned us a, a national reputation that we've by and large uh, rid ourselves of, at least where the reality of water quality is concerned compared to most other urban waterways um, and embayments around cities. But we have yet to shake that that reputation and this is not going to help this is going to allow further encroachment into what areas we have left and i think that you hit on earlier about you know p taking a watershed perspective means thinking bigger 
It means thinking broader than our own personal experience on the ground, not having the, the benefit of a bird's eye view of the landscape and, and how water travels. Most of us in our homes, our relationship to water is turn on the tap and flush the toilet. The water just flows through. And we don't really experience, unless we get out into the world, the the, the breadth of, of where water is and how it flows and what impacts it. In the past here in Hamilton, a big part of our problem were, were called point sources. So the pipes from industry that flowed directly into the to, into the bay with all that contamination, and you could point directly at that pipe and say, there's the problem right there. Well, most of those have been remediated. The vast majority of those have been remediated. And now our problems come from what are called non-point sources. Parking lots and driveways, farm fields and highways all across the watershed, like I said, stretching almost up to the 401. And these are the sources and you can't uh, of, of the problems with surface water now, and you can't point to any one particular location necessarily and say, oh, there's the problem. We just fix that right there. That will solve all the problems. We have to take this broader view, and that's the vital role of conservation authorities. And what this pending Bill 229 does is really handcuff that role and it's hard to argue. I know people will be, you know, people may be inclined to say, well, it's it's just the, it's it's a reflection of this particular provincial government. But let's not forget that it's the province of Ontario right now and the people in the investigation branch that are pushing the city of Hamilton to do a cleanup in Shadow Creek, for example. Exactly. So it, it's not just that, oh, well, it's the provincial government. Um, it is It is the legislature that's pushing this bill through, but we still do record, you know, it's a more complicated view and we need that broad stakeholder um, uh, approach like we've, have, we've always benefited from for decades in Hamilton and the conservation authorities are a really vital part of that. Yeah, this is not a partisan issue. This is not a liberal versus conservative or a left-wing versus right-wing issue. And anybody that tries to characterize that doesn't fully understand that. And and people in the past have understood. Uh, I mean, if for instance, in U.S. history, uh, Teddy Roosevelt is considered to be one of the great environmental presidents long before it was fashionable to boost. Richard Nixon uh, was very environmentally conscious. Brian Mulroney on this side uh, considered to be the most environmentally friendly prime minister in the history of this country. It's it's not a liberal versus conservative issue. It's common sense. And, and you're right uh yeah you can lambaste the the ford government for the, the work that they're doing with this proposed bill but on the other hand i congratulate them for you know holding city council's feet to the fire on what's happened with the with the shadow creek and what happens happened there so we have to consider this and and again i think a, a part of the thing we need to do and i know you guys do this at, at the bay area restoration council as the conservation authority does is educate people about this about you know why this is here uh, I mean, we talk about the Hamilton Conservation Authority, and I guess people in this area are going to think, oh, yeah, well, that's the waterfront, and that's uh, Christie Conservation, and it's a fine, you know, and on and there are actually, when you, when you do the math on this, a number of different things, seven major watersheds within the boundaries of the Hamilton Conservation Authority. It's everywhere, and, and no matter what we do, it's going to have an impact on it. And, and if we don't pay attention to it, and your point about what's happening now is well taken i mean you know we talk about basement flooding we talk about overflow uh because we're you know to use the Joni mitchell thing from big taxi you know the paving paradise and putting up a parking lot well that means the water can't get it go anywhere it just stays there and it and it it has an impact on on on, on housing developments it has an impact on everything else uh if we're not smart uh you know we're going to find ourselves in a whole lot of trouble pretty quickly 
Absolutely. You know, just a couple things about what you mentioned there. Bill Davis was the Conservative Premier of Ontario for many, many years, and and a lot of progressive environmental legislation and and policy initiatives came out of that government. So it's not just a, like you said, it's not just a partisan issue. It really is. I mean, if you want to bring it down to nickels and dimes, the idea of preserving, you know, the natural features of ecosystems rather than being required down the road to build massive billion-dollar infrastructure facilities to clean our water because we paved over Coots Paradise and other places all over Ontario like that. I mean, that's just not really. That's not. That doesn't make. That doesn't make sense from any political angle. And there's a famous story from New York State from uh, from many years ago that they've they've done this and the studies have borne this out that rather than spending all of that enormous amounts of money on infrastructure to treat water in New York City. The city of New York actually bought land upstate in order to preserve those wetlands and protect that that area, sorry, those areas that do the natural cleaning of water themselves. The other point that you mentioned too, though, it's really, really important, the idea that somehow water exists like a Christie conservationist area and as the waterfront in the West Harbor by the Williams Cafe, and and there's not really anything in between to worry about. And in fact, that the opposite is true. And as soon as people realize that there's water all the way between those places, and that we have to manage that water somehow and protect it, and it becomes obvious then that there's a role for everybody. And so I'll just take the quick opportunity to say that the Canadian Environmental Law Association at CELA, that's C-E-L-A dot C-A, They've done a whole bunch of work, and people uh, who are listening might be interested to go there and find the analysis that they've they've worked on. And there's another organization called Ontario Nature at OntarioNature.org. Ontario Nature has put together some information for citizens that they can they can to use that language and then send that on to elected officials to express their concern that we're. We're going backwards. This is not headed in the in the right direction. This is not progressive. It's not smart. And again, like you said, it's not a partisan issue. This is really about doing the right thing for the future so that we leave ourselves options uh, as things continue to potentially get worse. The city of Hamilton has declared a climate emergency. But this will hamstring the ability of people locally, like the Conservation Authority and others involved in the cleanup of the harbor, to do the work in the watershed that needs to happen in order to ensure that we meet those goals for clean water. A, a thousand other things I want to talk about here, and sadly we're just about out of time here, but just one uh, uh, caveat to what we're talking about here, and, and you've made the point, and I want to reiterate this, uh, conservation authorities are not anti-development. Uh, I sat on that board, as I say, in Hamilton for a number of years, uh, and it's 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 smart development. That's what they want to do. So you, the more information you have about the impact the development's going to have, uh, the better the development's going to be for everybody involved. Anyway, if you're interested about this, uh, Chris, you've just given them a number of places they can go to get more information. Mm-hmm. With this, uh, but check out uh, this this proposal, this uh, Bill 229, and be vocal about it. There's a lot of other stuff on this too that we're going to talk about in uh, the days ahead. But great that you could join us on the program today, Chris. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to talk to you, Chris McLaughlin, Executive Director of the Bay Area Restoration Council here in the Hamilton area. The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. 
I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.